Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new case from the Court of Appeal examines the requirements for a general special employment relationship. Here's what happened on the unpublished opinion of Charles Aitken versus Pacific Steel Casting Company. Aitken sued Pacific Steel Casting, claiming they were negligent and responsible for the injuries caused by his 2006 workplace accident. At the time, Aitken had been loaned to Pacific by Plant Maintenance, who was his regular employer and an industrial employment agency. Pacific claimed that he was their special employee and thus they were protected by the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation. Aitken claimed he was not their special employee at the time and that they were not protected. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of Pacific and against Aitken, finding that a general special employment relationship existed. Aitken appealed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the judgment in favor of Pacific in the unpublished opinion. The opinion reviewed the facts of his relationship with Pacific and the law on general special employment. Pacific claimed that the following facts supported the general special employment relationship. Pacific's regular business was the manufacturing of steel casings, but as part of that business it utilized industrial maintenance personnel at different mechanical skill levels. Aitken did the same work as that performed by Pacific's own general employees. His, work, his hours were set by Pacific. No one at plant maintenance was present at Pacific's premises to supervise Aitken. Each morning, Aitken received his job assignment and directions from Pacific's supervisor. He was required to wear personal protection equipment, some of which was supplied by Pacific. Pacific's supervisor checked Aitken's work when it was completed. Like Pacific's regular employees, Aitken brought his own tools. Although materials, large tools, machinery, and equipment were provided by Pacific. Pacific had the right to terminate its relationship with Aitken at any time. On the other hand, Aitken claimed the following facts supported a finding of no general special employment relationship. Aitken was a skilled industrial millwright and an employee of plant maintenance. He had been loaned by plant to Pacific for a temporary assignment. It was plant maintenance and not Pacific Steel who paid Aitken directly. If the plant maintenance supervisor directed that he be placed at another job site, Aitken would follow this direction even if Pacific objected to the move. While he worked at Pacific's premises, Pacific generally did not watch over Aitken as he performed his work. Aitken himself exercised substantial control over operational details of his work. In addition to bringing and using personal tools while employed by Pacific Steel, on one occasion he went to plant maintenance to borrow tools, which Pacific did not have. The Court of Appeal held that when an employer lends an employee to another employer and relinquishes to the borrowing employer some right of control over the employee's activities, a special employment relationship arises between the borrowing employer and the employee. In determining whether a special, whether a special employment uh, relationship exists, the primary consideration is whether the special employer has a right to control and direct the activities of the alleged employee or the manner and method in which the work is performed, whether exercised or not. The court concluded that there was undisputed evidence establishing that Aitken was its special employee at the time of his injury. Pacific was protected by the exclusive remedy. In other news, a Whittier Railroad switchman has been awarded $4.9 million for an industrial ankle injury.
Congress passed the Federal Employers Liability Act, also known as FELA, in 1908. FELA is a United States federal law that protects and compensates railroad workers injured on the job and who are not covered by regular workers' compensation laws. They are able to sue railroad companies engaged in interstate commerce and civil courts. FELA allows juries to decide monetary payments for pain and suffering based on comparative negligence rather than a predetermined benefit schedule under workers' compensation. A Los, a Los Angeles jury awarded David Martin Jr., a Whittier resident and switchman for Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway, $4.9 million last week for an ankle injury he sustained when he jumped off of a locomotive in 2008 just before a collision occurred near a repair yard in Commerce, California. The suit claimed that there was a breakdown of communications when Martin unsuccessfully tried to warn the engineer, John Franks, about the impending collision. Franks was operating the locomotive from the rear. Burlington claimed that Martin was also negligent for not climbing into the cab and applying the brakes instead of jumping off. Martin suffered a severe ankle fracture and has had an ankle fusion. His attorney, Anthony Petru, argued to the jury that Martin was considering amputation of his right foot. His doctors also claimed that he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. The Burlington defense attorney, James Van Dam, argued that there was no medical there was no evidence of any medical need for an amputation. The jury deliberated for a day and a half before arriving at their $4.9 million verdict. Congress passed FELA in response to the high number of railroad uh, deaths in the late 19th century and early 20th century. In the 44 years following the enactment of FELA, 26 bills were introduced to replace the FELA with workers' compensation. Congress refused in each instance to make this change. These attacks upon the fella have continued to the present, and in each instance they have been rebuffed by Congress. Tens of millions of dollars have been paid by railroad companies to settle toxic solvent lawsuits under fella. Current or former railroad workers have claimed exposure to toxic solvents from the 1960s into the 1990s has caused mild to severe brain damage. CSX, the largest railroad, in eastern United States has acknowledged settling 466 solvent exposure claims and paying up to $35 million for these claims. And now a fraud report. The Contractors State License Board and other law enforcement offices again conducted undercover sting operations in cities northern and southern California. In Riverside County, four unlicensed contractors who offered to do home modifications at a retirement community were cited. The Riverside County District Attorney's Office stated the men solicited bids for a home improvement project without proper credentials. The undercover operation was conducted by the CSLB's statewide investigative fraud team supported by prosecutors from the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. Decoy solicited bids from prospective contractors seeking cost appraisals for a new concrete front wheel walkway, a wheelchair access widening project, floor replacement, and interior painting. A sting in Fresno by investigators netted a registered sex offender who was headed to court on charges of illegal contracting. The landscaper, Conrad Garza of Kingsburg, thought he was up for a big job in the Fig Garden area but became one of 17 alleged unlicensed operators nabbed in the sting at Northwest Fresno Home. The investigative fraud team posed as homeowners seeking tree trimming, landscaping, painting, roofing, and electrical work at the property. 
Five suspects will face additional charges for failure to carry workers' compensation insurance for employees, 11 for illegal advertising, three for soliciting an excessive down payment, and one for misdemeanor, misrepresentation of a contractor license not issued to him. One had a no-bail warrant for domestic violence, and a man who accompanied another unlicensed operator had a no-bail warrant for failure to appear in court on charges of driving under the influence. In Kern County, eight suspected unlicensed operators were arrested. Investigators posed as homeowners and invited suspected phony contractors to a newly constructed home near Pearson Park in Ridgecrest. All eight will face a charge of failing to, failing to secure workers' compensation insurance for employees. And in regulatory news, the Department of Industrial Relations Division of Occupational Safety and Health, better known as Cal OSHA, reminds California employers who have 11 or more employees to post their 2010 summary of work-related injuries and illnesses. Employers are required to post this summary from February 1st through April 30th each year. The Form 300A injury log is available on DIR's website. Employers must keep a separate log for each establishment that is expected to be in operation for one year or longer. Certain public or private sector employers in listed retail, service, finance, insurance, or real estate industries do not need to keep Calosha injury uh, and illness records. Employees, former employees, and their representatives have the right to review the log at any time. Vital information must also include the nature of the injury or illness, the severity of the work-related incidents, and the number of days of employee missed work due to the injury or illness. Employers who need more information about their posting requirements are urged to visit the DIR website. One of the least likely places one might expect to see frequent workplace violence is in the healthcare industry. Yet the Joint Commission, the federal body that accredits hospitals, warned that since 2004, there has been significant increases in reports of assault, rape, and homicide. The healthcare industry has the highest rates of workplace violence among all sectors, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And a survey, survey released in July 2009 by the Emergency Nurses Association reported that more than half of all emergency room nurses had been physically assaulted at work. The assaults include being spit upon, hit, kicked, pushed or shoved, and scratched. RNs are reporting that conditions have worsened in the past five years because patients are more prone to lose control. People are stressed out, desperate, and more agitated when they enter the hospital or seek help from an emergency room. Several severe attacks on medical providers have captured headlines recently. In late October, a patient inmate at a jail in Martinez, California, faked a seizure and smashed a lamp into the head of an RN, Cynthia Baraka Polomada, killing her. Hmm. In June, Joan Meisler, an emergency room RN at Temp University Hospital in Philadelphia, was badly beaten by patients. A psychiatric technician at Napa State Hospital in California was strangled by a patient in October. And in September, the son of a patient shot at a Johns Hopkins Hospital doctor before turning the gun on his, on his self and his mother. Uh, in response to workplace violence, many National Nurses United affiliate groups are working to help prevent the incidents from happening in the first place through better staffing. 
Some RNs who are currently bargaining contracts are seeking to include model workplace violence language into their agreements. Another route for group uh, is to pursue legislation in their respective states. Following Polamata's death, the California Nurses Association worked with California Assembly member Mary Hayashi to introduce AB 30 in December 2010. That would assure RNs have adequate staffing and safety measures at work. The bill is still pending in the State Assembly. Staffing, say RNs, is critical to minimizing violence. And in medical news, a new study shows that not all treatment guidelines are based on good science. SB 899 amended Labor Code Section 4600 to require that medical care conform to scientifically and evidence-based medical treatment guidelines that are nationally recognized by the medical community. In the event there is a controversy or conflict between different guidelines, DWC Regulation 9792.25 provides a comprehensive scheme for rating the quality of the science behind competing guidelines. The guideline with its highest rating uses this criteria, shall be given the highest evidentiary weight. While it might seem strange that published treatment guidelines might be based upon less than high quality science, a new study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry demonstrates that this may not be the case. After reviewing 105 supposedly gold standard drug trials for bipolar disorder published between 2000 and 2008, researchers had to exclude several of them and downgrade even more because critical information was lacking from the reports. To judge how well such information was reported in medical journals, the researchers used a checklist with 72 items that should be included in reports. They found a quarter of those items weren't adequately addressed in the 105 trials of bipolar disorder drugs. In the end, only six of 105 studies passed muster with the review panel. Psychiatrists concluded that it was not easy to decide what studies they could rely on. Researchers even questioned whether doing trials with thousands of patients was really worth it if you cannot use the data. Workers' Compensation claims administrators should not necessarily assume that published medical studies and treatment guidelines are based upon high-quality science. When in doubt, it is helpful to consult the rating criteria specified in DWC Regulation 9792.25. If the study does not rate high using the 11 criteria in this regulation, it is not high-quality science and can be defeated with better quality science and litigation over appropriate treatment for injured workers. A new study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry claims that antidepressant medication use without, psychiatric, without a psychiatric diagnosis is common in the United States. Researcher examined data from over 20,000 pati patients. Among individuals who took antidepressants, 26.3% did not meet the criteria for any psychiatric disorder or diagnosis. Individuals taking antidepressants in the absence of an ADSM-4 disorder were more likely to have been prescribed these medications by family physicians rather than by a psychiatrist. Researchers claim that millions of people could be exposed to side effects from the medicines without proven health benefits. Experts said the new findings are not unusual. These findings raise questions about the clinical appropriateness of antidepressant treatment selection for many primary care uh, patients. 
Antidepressants rank fourth among prescription drugs in the U.S. with sales of $9.9 billion in 2009. Sales are up 3% since the previous year. Popular brands include Pfizer's Zoloft, Forest Laboratories, Lexapro, and Ellie Lilly's Prozac. And in financial news, Chartis intends to boost reserves by $4.1 billion. About 80% of the boost relates to four classes of business, asbestos, excess casualty, excess workers' compensation, and primary workers' compensation, AIG said. A majority of the reserve increase relates to policies sold before 2006. Some insurance analysts have long suspected that AIG has been too optimistic, while other insurers have lowered estimates of their future claims and released reserves, AIG has instead added to them. A year ago, the insurer pumped $2.3 billion into Chartis when it reported 2009 results. The company said at the time it was for claims prior to 2003 and primarily for excess casualty and excess workers' compensation. Excess coverage kicks in only when a company has claims over the amount covered by its primary insurance policy. The reserve increase comes just months before AIG is likely to launch a long-anticipated share sale, dubbed the RE-IPO, that will help the U.S. government's involvement with the company. The increase in AIG's reserves will strengthen the company's balance sheet before it sells shares to investors. But the charge could also fan concerns about the potential for additional reserve increases on policies AIG sold in more recent years. In fact, investors flagged the issue in discussions with investment bankers who canvassed feedback from the investing community before pitching for roles in the upcoming AIG share offering. Berkshire Hathaway, Homestead Companies, has been providing workers' compensation insurance to businesses predominantly in California and in the Southeast for over 30 years. They have now expanded their ability to provide workers' compensation coverage to 44 non-monopolistic -mono states. This is every state that allows private insurers to compete for business. The Berkshire Hathaway home state companies are a group of six regional insurance carriers that are part of the Berkshire Hathaway Insurance Group. The group includes a reinsurance operation which specializes in catastrophic catastrophic risks and primary insurance operations which write commercial property and casualty insurance with a focus on commercial auto and workers' compensation. Headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska, Berkshire has evolved from a Midwestern regional carrier to a multi-state insurance group writing a diverse book of policies from coast to coast. Berkshire Hathaway Homestead uh, companies is a wholly owned subsidiary of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Incorporated. Berkshire conducts its insurance and reinsurance activities through 32 domestic and 15 foreign-based insurance companies including Geico, General Reinsurance, and National Indemnity. And in other news, the industry was saddened to hear that Carrie Nevins, the acting administrative director of the State Division of Workers' Compensation, died of kidney failure. Ms. Nevins had a kidney transplant in 2002. Nevins served the Division of Workers' Compensation as Deputy Administrative Director and as Acting Administrative Director since October 2005. While working in the DIR Director's Office, Ms. Nevins 
implemented three legislative reform bills, including SB 899. She had a staff of 1,200 along with a budget of over 135 million. Nevin started her career as a claims adjuster for the State Compensation Insurance Fund in 1982. She was a certified self-insurer, administrator, fully versed in all the specifics of workers' compensation as well as the ethics of claims administration. She will be deeply missed by the DWC and their staff. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts, our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm David Jimenez with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please stop by again next week for more news.